Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover a gynecological emergency called ovarian torsion. Ovarian torsion, which affects females of all ages, is a gynecological emergency. It refers to complete or partial rotation of the adnexa, resulting in ischemic changes in the ovary. Torsions more commonly involve both the ovary and fallopian tube, and there are fewer cases of isolated torsion involving either one. Torsion involving paratubal or paraovarian cysts has also been documented. Early diagnosis and surgery are essential to protect ovarian and tubal function and prevent severe morbidity. Ovarian torsion most often occurs in the reproductive age group and it is less common in the premenarchal and postmenopausal woman. As for risk factors, more than 80% of patients with documented ovarian torsion had an ovarian mass of 5 centimeters or larger, indicating that the primary risk in ovarian torsion is an ovarian mass. The sizes of ovarian masses are correlated with the risk of torsion. Ovarian torsion has been reported to occur with masses from 1 to 30 centimeters in size, but it can happen with a mass of any size. Ovulation induction for treatment of infertility can cause multiple large ovarian follicular cysts, and so these patients should be screened in the setting or presentation of acute abdominal pain. The large cyst also carries an increased risk of torsion. Ovarian torsion is more likely to occur with a benign tumor than with a malignancy because malignant masses tend to become parasitic and fixed. The incidence of ovarian torsion with ovarian malignancy was less than 2% in reported case series. Now, compared with older women, premenarchal girls with ovarian torsion are more commonly found to have a normal ovary. More than 50% of patients under the age of 15 with torsion have normal ovaries. Torsion occurred more in patients with normal adnexa than those with abnormal adnexa in those under the age of 15. Now, remember, even though we call this a gynecological emergency, pregnancy is not immune. Remember that about 10 to 20% of ovarian torsion cases actually occur during pregnancy. The incidence is highest between 10 and 17 weeks of gestation with ovarian masses larger than 4 centimeters. Nonetheless, pregnant women with adnexal masses of 4 centimeters or greater still have about a 1 to 6% lower incidence of torsion compared with non-pregnant cohorts. All right, when we come back, let's talk about the clinical presentation, evaluation, and then finally, we'll end the podcast with management. As for presentation, ovarian torsion due to an adnexal mass causes various symptoms and signs on clinical presentation. The most common symptom is acute onset of lower abdominal pain followed by nausea and vomiting. Some patients experience waves of nausea with or without vomiting. The abdominal pain is usually colicky and on and off, but always with a sudden onset. Most reported patients presented for evaluation one or more days up as late as 210 days after the pain onset. Now, premenarchal patients tended to mention diffuse pain because it was difficult for them to localize. The uncomfortable symptoms and signs were considered to be caused by the adnexal torsion. 
ovarian torsion without infective disease resulting in a low-grade fever has been found in some patients. So that's a clinical pearl. You can have ovarian torsion without an infective etiology still resulting in a low-grade fever, probably due to edema and inflammation of the ovarian tissue. Well, what about evaluation and diagnosis? Well, on clinical presentation, the first approach to a patient is a medical history, of course, and a full physical exam. The medical history should include any recent diagnosis of adnexal masses, recurrent abdominal pain, and low-grade fever. The physical exam should include a search for a pelvic mass or pain. Laboratory evaluation can include, of course, first off, a human chorionic gonadotropin value, a H and H, and a complete metabolic profile as well. Remember, of course, that imaging studies are the most important when evaluating any reproductive age female with abdominal or pelvic pain, especially when a pelvic mass is suspected. Ultrasound is the first-line diagnostic tool. A torsed ovary may be rounded and enlarged compared with a contralateral ovary because of edema or vascular and lymph engorgement. An ultrasound can easily distinguish an ovarian mass by its components, location, density, Doppler flow, and its size. There can be decreased or absent Doppler flow in the vessels of a torsed ovary. Now, one prospective study reported that Doppler flow has high sensitivity and specificity, but another retrospective study showed low sensitivity but high specificity in the diagnosis of ovarian torsion. Now, it is not the gold standard for diagnosis, but it is still a good tool. Again, we're talking about Doppler ultrasound. Two other studies suggested that a whirlpool sign is highly sensitive for ovarian torsion. The whirlpool sign shows a twisted vascular pedicle and a Doppler sonogram reveals circular vessels within the mass. However, a further study on the diagnosis of ovarian torsion is still necessary in order to determine the usefulness of this sign in ovarian torsion. Magnetic resonance imaging is expensive, but it can be helpful in diagnosis of ovarian torsion if findings on ultrasound are equivocal. MRI can demonstrate the components of a mass in more detail than an ultrasound. CT, however, is not typically used in ovarian torsion because of radiation and density, but patients with acute abdominal or pelvic pain need to undergo CT to exclude diagnosis other than gynecological etiologies like appendicitis, diverticulitis, or other etiologies. Finally, direct visualization is still needed for a definitive diagnosis of ovarian torsion. Hence, the diagnosis needs to be surgically proven for early rescue of ovarian function. All right, this is a good place to stop and talk about quickly this clinical pearl about imaging. Remember that absent Doppler flow in the appropriate clinical context is suggestive ovarian torsion. However, even if you still see Doppler flow in the ovarian vessels, it does not rule out partial torsion. So while absent flow highly suspects it, even with flow, it does not rule out the possibility of existing ovarian torsion. Okay, when we come back, let's talk about the surgical management principles for ovarian torsion. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, team. Let's wrap up this podcast by covering management of ovarian torsion. The gold standard to treat ovarian torsion is surgery. And this also is the only way to confirm the torsion. There are two surgical methods, of course. Laparoscopy, which in general is the preferred method, and laparotomy. A laparoscopic approach has become the popular procedure. However, if cancer of the ovary or fallopian tube is suspected, a laparotomy should be done. While performing the surgery, it is necessary to assess ovarian viability and preserve its function if possible. The only way to determine the viability of a torsed ovary during surgery is by gross visual inspection. In the conventional viewpoint, dark and enlarged ovaries may have vascular and lymphatic congestion and may seem non-viable. However, multiple studies have suggested that even black or bluish ovaries can retain ovarian function following detorsion. Post-operative follow-up with ultrasound showed over 80% of patients had normal follicular development after unwinding the twist. Animal studies showed that there may not be total occlusion of the artery in ovarian torsion even with venous and lymphatic congestion. Now, in recent years, the mainstay of the treatment for ovarian torsion has been surgical evaluation with ovarian preservation. So that's a clinical pearl. What once started as a concept to preserve ovarian function in adolescence really has kept all throughout reproductive age women. Now, if a woman is perimenopausal, generally thought of as over the age of 40, especially over 45, then it can be considered possible to remove the ovary since it may be nearing its end of life expectancy. Now, there are many ways to perform the surgery and detorsion of an ovarian conservation are almost always recommended now rather than salpingo-ovarectomy. An ovarian cystectomy, however, is often performed for a benign ovarian mass in order to reduce the chance of retorsion. So that's another clinical pearl. Just because ovarectomy is not not considered the gold standard anymore, it still requires cystectomy to try to prevent recurrent torsion. Now, of course, if malignancy is highly suspected, a salpingo-ovarectomy is needed. Now, according to many observational studies, detorsion is associated with preserved ovarian function. We've already stated that. The earlier the approach to torsion, however, the higher the chance to preserve function. An animal study showed that necrosis might develop after occlusion of ovarian vessels for 36 hours or longer. So it's important to get that detailed history of when the pain first started to help determine if ovarian tissue may in fact be viable. Now, after the symptoms have developed, ovarian conservation reportedly decreases with time. No evidence suggests that detorsion increases adverse events post-op. So that's another clinical pearl. No current evidence suggests that detorsion increases adverse events post-op. And once again, cystectomy can be done to decrease the risk of recurrence. Management in pregnant women is similar to that in a non-pregnant woman, with laparoscopic surgery safe for torsion in pregnancy. 
All right, as we wrap up the session, again, just stressing the importance of prevention of recurrence. Now, there is a risk of recurrence after detorsion, even with cystectomy, but the true incidence on recurrence is actually unknown. According to recent research and expert opinion, several things can be attempted to try to reduce that risk of recurrence, like beginning hormonal suppression by contraception. Another method is ovarian fixation, where the ovary is stitched or fixed along the pelvic sidewall. However, both these approaches lack long-term follow-up and systematic study. Well, that wraps up our quick review of the emergent gynecological condition called ovarian torsion. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.